Welcome to the first of our podcast series, Immigration Detention, The Hidden Costs, brought to you by the Unchained Collective, where we will be hearing conversations between those who have spent time indefinitely detained on administrative grounds in British immigration detention centres. The aim is to raise critical awareness through the powerful voice of experience of the destructive impact of immigration detention on many levels, on individuals, families, communities and society at large. Discussions encompass the ongoing harms of being dehumanised and criminalised, the stigma and rejection individuals face upon release into the community, as well as the economic impacts of this system on individuals and society as a whole. However, these conversations importantly also demonstrate the strength and powerful resistance of those targeted by this system. A crucial question is raised. Why is this system that destroys lives, wastes public funds and fosters division in our society allowed to continue? Can we envision alternative ways of being together in our shared vulnerability? Can we build a society where everyone has the right to breathe? Ultimately, these powerful accounts serve as a collective call to action. When future books chronicle the history of systematic incarceration and torture, sometimes resulting in death, of predominantly non-white individuals for crossing borders, what role would you like to have played in that history? This is a question this podcast series compels you to ask yourself. these women and all these people that they have passed through a lot of trauma before even coming to UK so uh, kind of uh, detaining them is kind of really traumatizing them again they would be walking up and down the corridors in the night you hear their boots you know thumping on the floor you couldn't sleep because they would be taking people to deport them in the night. The whole idea of a detention system. But they didn't tell me why I was detained. It's based on past experience of colonialism. I still now don't know why they detained me. The detention made us to be alienated from each other. Nobody wanted anything to do with me because they felt I might have committed a crime. I'm being labeled as a criminal, so I don't have any freedom. The wastage of money involved in running this whole institution. And you just feel losing my identity, having to get adjusted to, you know, being called out through a number. I feel like, I mean, just a number. You are unwanted. You feel like you are really not like a human being. Everybody, men and women, to be behind bars is an economic waste, is a human waste. We need to counterbalance the negative rhetorics that are coming out there that immigrants are nothing but a burden to society. And this hatred to hate other people who are not English. Knowledge, they say, is power. Ignorance is a very big disease. They want to silence us. It takes courage for us to be here. I refuse to let their system break me. I don't want to be a victim. Rather, I want to be a victim. Anything. 
Welcome to this podcast series, The Hidden Cost of Immigration Detention, brought to you by the Unchained Collective. In this episode, Flower shares her experience of confusion and trauma while navigating the process of claiming asylum, prison, and the immigration system. She speaks of the loss of trust in family and friends and rejection from the community. Alongside the ongoing impact of trauma, the lack of clear pathways of support for those who have been through detention highlights the need for long-term mental health support regardless of citizenship status. Hello there. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. Oh, good to see you. Thank you. You said your name is Flower. Yes, I'm Flower. Oh, nice meeting you (laughs) once again. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, Would you please uh, mind uh, telling me a little bit about yourself and why you are here today? My name is Flower. Uh-huh. I was facing a lot of um, persecution and abuse in my country, okay. so I fled to the UK. Mm-hmm. I was coming here for safety and everything else, mm. but um, things didn't turn out the way I imagined. Um, I had no idea about the uh, asylum system. So 2009, I got myself involved in in a sham marriage Mm. just because I was trying to survive. Things were hard. I was living literally from one house to another and I had to get into some relationships just because I was trying to survive in the UK. And I was very scared of the police. I was very scared of everything. I lived in fear. I couldn't even hear anyone knock at the door where I was living. And... um, that happened for years. That's why I made that decision to get myself to do a sham marriage. Mm-hmm. And then after doing the sham marriage, I was given five years to stay in the UK. And to me, it was freedom. I was so happy. I was so pleased with the outcome. And I kept I kept chasing my dreams because I've always wanted to to help people, to support people. But I didn't know where to start from. I had mm. to go and start from um, the college. So I did access to nursing. Mm. Got, yeah, so I kept my head high. I put away my trauma because there was a lot of trauma involved. But I decided to actually carry on pursuing my dream. I ended up being a nurse. And during that that time, I got pregnant, had my son. And mm-hmm. yes, so things were going well and I was happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment that I put in my son's application, because he wasn't the father of um, my husband, mm. the home office picked on that and then they started persecuting me. So that is where I found myself in prison. And mm-hmm. it was a very difficult time because the immigration officers, it came about six of them. And mm-hmm. my son was there, traumatized, crying, mommy, mommy. Oh, God. And, um, yeah, so they followed me to my son's nursery that morning. I can remember it clearly. Mm. And it, I felt I felt like I was just going to, um, I don't know, 
I don't know my feelings at the time. It was so traumatizing for me to see my son go through that because uh, it wasn't about just me. It was about the neighbors, the community, what what they were going to think about myself and my son and my family was going on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so they took me to court and when the news got to my workplace, they didn't take it well. They didn't really fire me, but they did say that I did not report to them that I was going through court proceedings. And mm. for that reason, they reported me to the NMC and the NMC stroked me off. So okay. I wasn't allowed to practice as a nurse in the UK, oh, even dear. though I studied here. So mm. prison life was hard. And after prison, I, I was definitely hoping that life was going to be a little bit better. But they kept sending me letters while I was in there saying that I have no other reason for living in the, in the country, so I have to be deported. Um, right while there, I lost my state of mind. I wasn't mentally, I wasn't stable. My son was outside crying. And the only person who was looking after my son, my cousin, the home office went after her just because they wanted her to give up on everything so that we can be easily deported. And finally, she was so scared that she ran back to my country. So she left the country and left my son um, in the middle of nowhere. So I had to ring my work work colleagues Uh to support me. So there was one very nice one. Um, who took my son, looked after him. But at the time, I agreed, well, we agreed that she was going to keep my son for six months. And I was detained. So after my, it gave me two years imprisonment. Mm -hmm. So I was locked in for two years. Two years years in the prison. Yes. Okay, sorry. So after the two years, I did a year in, I was supposed to do another year in the community where... um, a probation officer will, will support me. So I did one year in prison and I was there for an extra two weeks before mm. going to the detention center. Okay. So when I got to the detention center, I felt like there was a bit of hope, but it wasn't true. It was the same as prison. Mm-hmm. It was it was even worse because I didn't know when I was going to be released. It oh, was dear. the worst trauma. So... Mm. And my friend who took my son and kept him for six months, she was already requesting that I should take my son. So I was very traumatized that day. I remember just sitting outside of my bedroom in the in the detention center crying and the officers came. Um, I had a little bit of support, but I also found out that they got into my phone to really see if I'm not just playing if I'm not just lying mm. so they saw the messages that my colleagues sent to me regard, in regard to my son mm. so when they saw that then they came and started attending to me because they realized I was saying the truth mm. and while in there the healthcare system wasn't good enough I was suffering mentally and every time I explained my symptoms I had um, they sent the therapist to talk to me, even without prescribing medication. And it was after a long while that they realized I was actually suffering. And then they put me on metazapine for... Um, and they kept increasing the dose because it was that bad. Mm-hmm. Oh. So you stayed in detention, like, for how long were you in detention? I was detained for three months. Oh. And I was hoping to be released, but... The first reason they gave me was that I don't have a place to live. But my husband 
right mm. now. So he was the one who was supposed to bail me out. I asked him to give me his address. He gave it to me. But because the probation was working with the home office, mm. they kept saying that his house is not big enough. And he had a two-bedroom flat. They went in there to check. I had a son and he has a daughter. So the, the daughter only visits during weekend. She sleeps there during weekend. Mm. And my son um, could take stay in a bedroom and my husband and I take a bedroom. But the, the probation officer wouldn't allow that to happen. At some point, they even said my address is not, th- that address is not showing on the on the map. They don't know where it is, so it's not in the UK. Oh, God. So I was really frustrated and then finally got a friend who is married to a British citizen mm. and they went out to check on the basement that they had. That is when they finally um, accepted that, that address I can live there and I'll be safe there. So when I started living there, I still requested because my husband wrote to them a letter saying that he was actually going to to um, take it take this very seriously. Yes, my son had started school in September, so that's when they allowed me to stay with my my husband. So that's how you came out finally. That's how I finally okay. got my bail. Okay. Um, so. After you came out, um, what are the effects um, um, all these experiences has had on you? The impact, you know, um, on your mental, physical, you know, for example. The first thing is I couldn't trust anyone because mm. um, I wasn't sure. Mm. I wasn't sure about um, the who to trust because while I was in prison and detention, all my friends. Um, denied me and I know that the effect on my family as well was was big because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a big shame in my culture to, to be in prison. Myself personally, I suffered a lot of trauma just thinking about what people were going to say to me okay. and the rejection. I was I didn't have enough support from the government in any way. I was never given the 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, housing, it was my fiance at the time but now we are we are married mm. he was the one supporting me with everything yeah um very moving you know what mm-hmm. you have told me already mm. um so also how has this impacted upon you your relationship like with your family your own family members um i don't really we don't really talk because i think there's that division of She's been to prison, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of stigma um, and cultural shock, cultural problems mm-hmm. around there. They're not, they're not just accepting that, and it's still living with me right up to now. So, okay, yes. Uh, what yeah. about uh, the community interacting with your community? How has your life been on that side? I go to church. But I keep it quiet mm. because I am aware that um, if they know about my situation, I, I might not be accepted. So mm. there's still that bit of me that hasn't recovered. So I've, I'm not fully free to, to say my story. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's something that I'm working on, mm. building my confidence back, building my self-esteem. Okay. Um, yes feeling human again because 
all of that was taken over the years. Okay. What about um, uh, concerning employment? Um, what have you been through? Has it been easy going or is it still hard for you? You know. Um, it took me four years to be given a, um, a work permit. Mm. It took the Home Office four years to make a decision. When I went to court, the Home Office, um, the, um, well, the judge granted my, my appeal, mm-hmm. but the, the Home Office rejected it, and they, they also had to appeal against mm. the, the approval. So I went back, and the only reason they gave me was because I was pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. When they saw that I was 16 weeks pregnant, that's when they, they said, okay, we're letting her. And yes, unfortunately, I lost the baby mm. because of stress and pressure. I couldn't, it was just hard to go Sorry through about that. the immigration. Mm. And mm. yeah, so I, lo- I was pregnant 16 weeks later. I lost the baby because mm. of all this trauma. So, um, so work at the moment... Like I said, my pin was taken. I studied in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was I was hoping for normality, but obviously that's never going to come back. Mm-hmm. I'm never. I'm not going to be the person that I wish to be. Mm-hmm. But I'm so grateful for um, a charity called Beyond Detention. While I was still waiting for my paper, I started doing these online courses with mm-hmm. a charity called Beyond Detention and. They have now employed me mm-hmm. as an activity coordinator. So, um, yes, yeah, so I'm I'm very happy because the job helps me to also support the people who are going through this kind of experience. So, yeah, so job-wise, but before then, four years mm-hmm. before I got my work permit, I, I went through, it was hard. My husband and I couldn't cope. We were just literally begging from here and there. Because I had my son with me, remember? So it wasn't mm, easy to be in that situation. And my husband, he was just working um, 37 hours a week. And he also has a daughter. So it was it was hard. Oh, yeah. it must have been terrible for you going yeah. through all this experience. Yeah. Uh, what about um, your access to public welfare, social support? Even at the moment, I'm not entitled um, for anything, even though I've been given two and a half years really? to stay, yes, um, I'm still restricted. Mm. I think it's going to go on for about 10 years, I was my told. God. Yes, and before the, because I was given a deportation letter for myself and my son mm. um, at the time, so they're still saying that they have to review review everything about me every two and a half years. They just, mm-hmm. yeah, so they still have to review things before mm-hmm. we can... So we're not free-free. Oh, <laughs> if, well, if yeah, I, have to I can say, understand yeah. from yeah. your explanation. Mm. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear your story. Thank you. And, uh, I mean, it's really a terrible experience. Yeah. How do you feel mentally now? Uh, still... Because there's no no clear pathway for rehabilitation when you've been to places like this, especially when uh, the probation. What I what I found out is that they had 
opportunities for British citizens. But mm. once they hear that you are a foreigner, mm. they don't have much going on for you because the Home Office says that you're going to be deported and clearly they, they there's no funding to support you. I had to find one myself. When I came out, I contacted my GP and they, they actually diagnosed me with PTSD at the time. Mm-hmm. And they put me on a waiting list and mm. they said mine was going to contact me. So um, I waited for a few, about six weeks and nobody contacted me. So I had to go and start looking for them myself. I was ringing and saying, I need help. I need help. I need support. I need mm. support. And they asked me if I could go to their office to do that. It was a one hour session. I spoke to the person face to face and she, she discharged me after about six or seven months because they can't really carry on looking after you for a long period of time. So when she discharged me, she did say um, I could find another another charity or another organization to support me mentally because she she acknowledged that um, I wasn't stable. Mm. So, and I I had to look for another um, organization, but it wasn't easy Mm. to get them. I was given a court date, went to court, and they made a decision on my case. And when I finished with the court and I knew it was going to be a positive outcome, that is when I started feeling like I'm recovering. Mm. That is when my uh, my peace was restored and mm. slowly I could feel better within okay. myself because it was very big part of me the fact that I wasn't able to work I wasn't able to do anything it was just me Mm. in the house sleeping and even with the kids around me my stepdaughter my son I couldn't function properly like a parent so everything was taken away from me even to function as a wife it was just so hard Mm. and that would cause problems because just the fact that people around you are seeing that you're not you're not yourself it's Mm. not it's not good so yeah I lived it. I went through it. And, but oh. I'm here now. <laughs> oh, anyway, it's been interesting to listen to your story. Okay. And um, uh, it's really hard. I can understand what you went through. Yeah, it's been hard. And I wish you the best and hope things will, you know, at least things will improve for you. Thank you. You know, as time goes on, mm-hmm. I hope there'll be, you know, better ways for them to handle this matter. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Blessing. I appreciate you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.